Hello, welcome to the Real Work Podcast with me, Fleur Emery. Unedited conversations with women who are changing up the world of work. Extraordinary women who are founders, thought leaders or trailblazers. Here to inspire and inform your idea of what's possible for you. Hello and welcome back. This is part two of episode four with our guest Seema Kumar. That was much more professional, wasn't it? That was really good. Well done. And in episode one, if you haven't listened to it, you might want to recap because Seema talks about her very unusual um, um, family story, where she comes from, what she ended up doing, where she moved. And, you know, it was a feeling like we were getting to know her before we get to the conversation in this episode, which is it's quite intense. Seema gives us her views on white supremacy. And I think the theme is personal responsibility, racism, and a little bit of Donald Trump thrown in for good measure. Enjoy. Everything we do, even if it's... Um, a negative behavior and has negative results, people do it because it serves them in some way. So if you are someone who is really accustomed to pain, engaging in painful behaviors and painful relationships like that extract more pain is comforting because that's what you're familiar with. That's what your safe place feels like. But even even for people who don't have that, who don't have a his that you don't have a shared history like that, there's a um, feeling, the experience of moral outrage, like alleviates our own alleviates our own guilt. So, for example, when we're pointing, when I'm pointing the finger at you that you're not pointing the finger at me. But that's self-perpetuating because it also increases my anxiety that next it's going to be me who's going to have the finger pointed at me. And yeah. none of us none of us have a clean record because we're humans. So it creates a, a, a system whereby if I allow myself to blame you, I then experience the insecurity that I might be the next to be blamed. If you look at what actually happens, and people love a mob mentality, right? It's It's been there since the start of time. And if you look at it, if you look at, um, like, I don't feel any need to call out um, a celebrity because there's so many people doing that. And that could be like me saying, oh, a lot of people can say, you're abnegating responsibility. Like you should lend your voice to that. But I think what happens is people, I'm all about sustainability. I'm about the long game. And the long game for me is unity and self-actualization. So if I'm engaging in a lot of really um, stressful behaviors, because I want to be a part of something and I don't have all the facts and the data, um, then, you know, I have to look at what's my intention. And as well, no one can have all the facts and the data. No, not unless you're one-to-one -one involved with that situation. 
you know, like now we're finding out, it's like, you know, everybody's called out Justin Timberlake. And I think he was definitely wrong, but I thought that for almost 18 to 20 years, right? Um, because I have some access to those people. Um, but I didn't feel like I had to take it upon me to say, campaign for people calling out Justin Timberlake because you know my wisdom comes from my mom and it's very hard to translate out of Hindi but into English but she basically says in God's house it can be dark for a long time but eventually the lights come on eventually his lights come on you know it's like and it's not I think I think what she's saying is that we are all godlike. So your godlike experience can be shrouded in darkness for a long time. But if you recognize that within you, you are God, it's not some white Jesus sitting around in a cloud in the sky that you we are we are all gods. And you know, you can walk through valleys of darkness for decades. But if your commitment is to find the the light of God in you, the light will come on. It just might not come on when you want it to. So one of that kind of highlights one of my. I'm very reluctant always to, yeah, join it. I get quite disturbed by the kind of call out culture. I, I in my recovery from drug and alcohol addiction, my whole journey from being in a victim state to being, you know, a serene person who's free from addiction. The, the sort of treatment, if you like, was all about um, just keeping your own house in order, just concentrating on myself, not worrying about what other people have done to me. Think about, like, my own behaviour. And so it's very counterintuitive now for me to, like, pull apart other people's behaviour. I really try to avoid that. I notice when I'm doing it and I try not to because it makes me ill. Like, it, it, it I just feel like it's, it makes me ill. But... Looking, looking into this, I've read a couple of papers in the last week, knowing we we're going to have this conversation. And there's also another layer of it that, go, that sort of loops back to the work of the other box, where so people much cleverer than me, I read um, Meredith Clarker at the University of Virginia wrote a paper recently saying that even being able to cancel someone is an expression of privilege, it's an expression of agency. She she argues that cancel culture is traced back to, um, you know, traditions of genuinely mi minoritized people expressing useful, righteous anger. But that's now been harnessed by sort of has been hijacked, if you like, by socially elite people like pearl clutchers sort of saying, I'm outraged, I'm outraged. And, and, and then people then go on, other academics that I've just been looking into, then go on to say, where that leads to is that it um, takes away the power from minority groups to actually protest about things which you should be protested about because we're all getting so upset about Justin Timberlake and cancelling him. He'll bounce back. He has, he's, a, you know, first of all, people love a, like a celebrity scandal and I'm not interested in that, right? And again, this, this co-opting of cancel culture is really damaging uh, to activists, especially black activists. And so black activists get judged for being angry. And then you get an elite group of people with a lot of privilege 
um, basically saying, look, I'm, I'm doing the right thing. And that's, you know, looking for, uh, acceptance and that's, that's basically tokenism. What you're talking about in, um, it's an Australian scientist who, um, was writing about it and he calls it, um, outrage inflation. <laughs> Isn't that a brilliant term? Outrage inflation. It just like overinflates outrage. And so it, it is, yeah, it's co-opted by sort of the entitled. So the disenfranchised aren't able to use it as a tool as effectively. It's quite interesting. Yeah. The, I'm not quite thinking about that, but it's, it's quite interesting to read about. The, you have to look at the double standard and the double standard, just to be clear, is called oppression. So when uh, black women uh, cancel people, they're called angry. Like there's the trope of the angry black woman, right? But when people come out in droves who are white, they're like, yeah, see, you're just holding them accountable. You have to be accountable. You have to, it's very, you know, pompous and righteous. And the harm that that does is you're not looking at the power dynamics of why certain people are canceling people. It's not that if you're black or a minority ethnic that you get a pass in canceling you have to look at the oppression and the power dynamics and now we are all broadcasters you know we could all have podcasts we could all um, speak out on social media and when oppressed people are doing this it's very evident that white supremacy exists because there's a silencing that wants to go on. You need those activists. Um, there's a really great uh, less than 13 minute TED talk by a woman named Deborah Freeze, and it takes place in Jamaica Plains. And she's a localist and she identifies these four personas. And once we look at this as an ecosystem that is required for change and you know, this are the people who are calling out from a place of activism and highlighting oppression and reclaiming their voice. They have a right to do that. There's, you know, centuries of oppression there. And to judge that is to, in my it's, it's another form of moral outrage, because what you're not looking at is Black people were not treated as people. They were referred to as chattel. Like now, if you come from a lineage of people who were referred to as chattel and you're just trying to be human, I think at some point you're going to be pretty pissed off. And now that you have an Instagram account and a podcast and a book deal, I find it weird that you didn't write about how pissed off you were. What's happening is people are uncomfortable listening to it, therefore they judge it. But I think what's happened is there turns into infighting. So you're trying now focusing on how wrong cancel culture is, but within that ecosystem, it's a system. There's calling out, calling in, calling forward. Everyone has a role to play. And for me, I'm a call forward person because I've done work with people where like I'm talking very disruptive politically, like on a world stage, violent people who have threatened people with a gun to their head. And I've sat in rooms and said, 
what would it take for you not to pull the trigger to this person because they're an activist? It's a distraction, isn't it? Calling out is a distraction. I think that's my main problem with it. So, for yeah. example, with the- it depends on who's doing the calling out. It's necessary for some people. It's a distraction if you have privilege. Yeah, this is what I'm talking about. And because the, the, my, my, my problem, I think, with it is the idea that for those, the privileged people are actually gaining more privilege from it because you get more followers. You know, there's, in one of these reports I read, it gave, you know, there's a scientific study that just came out in, you know, behavioral psychology or something. I'm sure Buck as fact checker will put the correct um, <laughs> report in the comments. And, um, you know, it gives data on why, you know, politically emotive um, comments travel further digitally and gain more traction, engage more attention, you know, and, and so we, we get, we, we get paid more. And also there's this thing I read by this guy from Yale and he, he pulled apart the, how, um, this, this, the, this, in the, in the analog era, if we wanted to call someone out, we'd have to like go in the street, find where they lived, form a protest, point at them. So there was a lot of work involved. There was a lot of risk involved. You might lose your job. You might get punched in the face, you know, for very little reward, you know, that you were one of the people who showed up and protested about someone. But now with anonymous social media, there's very little barriers stopping us from taking the action. It's very easy to do it. And you get paid a lot more because you get shared, you get listened to, you know, people, you know, are getting sacked from their job. So it's like the the machinery has sped up a process that already exists. And the payoff for the privileged is a lot higher because they can supercharge their um, sense of being in certain groups and being aligned with. And they don't have the consequence. They don't have the same consequence. Because the problem is often not the person, isn't the individual. The the problem is why, like, even with really odious people, the problem is how they got there in the first place. So with Donald Trump being deplatformed from Twitter, you know, there's a whole big conversation going around that. But what I wanted to know is how do we get to a place in the world where, like, 75 million people voted for him? Like, that's that's... The problem, the problem is, you know, it, we're living in a symptomatic world. So people are not looking at the root cause of things. You know, he is not the problem. He was just a figurehead. Um, what happened? Is it neat? Okay. If you look at um, the universe is progressive, right? So no matter what happens, it's always going to be moving forward forward movement is the way it moves now sometimes it might constrict but when it goes to progress and it expounds again it's going to expound further so there was this false comfort we like you you made a huge leap when obama was voted as president unimaginable that there was going to be a black man and a black family in the white house right they did it and they did it well they didn't do it perfectly when i say they he did he wasn't a perfect leader but there is no my question to people is like why are you looking for perfection you know the fact that he got there was lightning years change 
Most change is incremental. When you have that type of exponential change for eight years, what's going to happen is the other force is going to close in on it and it's going to look like it's imploding. So to me, Donald Trump was the natural progression of Barack Obama. I, I listened to a thing on YouTube from George Monbiot recently, and he reckons that um, Obama, the Obama campaign alighted people's sense of hope and progression at such an accelerated speed that in a way he was unable to deliver on all our expectations. And George Monbiot also actually argues fairly convincingly that his Obama's policies with um, large industry and um, foreign policy were actually, you know, that he on, on some level abandoned some of the voters. That's what he says. I'm not, you know, but and so he, what he argues is that that disappointment created a vacuum that Trump was able to move in on, that it comes, that it's a sense of, there was some kind of a, a vacuum effect that happened. But I mean, I, I don't, it's not my area. And I'm sort of, we're wandering, we're wandering right off. But I, I think the interesting point like to come back to is the idea that um, what's happening at home, like with us, what, what it raises about us is the work that we can control. I can control myself, but I can't control you. Yeah. And just and that's kind of what you're coaching about, isn't it? Isn't it's about like saying, "What's your part in this? What's your part in this story? You, Who's telling the story? Who's in the story? Who's left out of the story? And what? How are you getting paid in the situation?" You really always have a role to play. So the thing, just for the Barack Obama point, um, I don't think that's correct because that's that's white supremacy at work, right? Like you can't blame the black man in office for letting people down, so that the crazy racist came in. It didn't open a door. The door was always ajar. Right. And, um, and I think that that's the thing is, um, what we can do is if we take resp I always say this, like if there's people, I'm always amazed at how many people follow the Kardashians because they just simply don't interest me. Now, I don't not like them, but they're not of interest. So what I'm talking about is we have to take responsibility for our interest. Interest is a huge motivator. And really what's happened is the world is interested in really toxic and inconsequential people because everyone can be a star. So now everyone's thinking whether it's people who are going to be calling out and white people who are calling out, or if you're co-opting the, you know, the, the effectiveness of calling out from activists, especially black activists and using it to basically become your own form of celebrity, you have a problem because you are self-serving. And the thing is, we are all interconnected. So for me, I, you know, I'm somebody who will unfollow family members, not because I dislike them. It's because I'm completely not interested in what they post. 
I can go to a family function and have a wonderful conversation with them and genuinely ask, how are you? How's your child? But you know, when people are posting mirror selfies with like 75 layers of filters and talking about um, where they got their clothes from, if you're interested in that in a world that is burning up and imploding, I'm not interested in you. God bless the people who are interested in you and everyone has their community and space. Yeah, they're the people playing the music while the ship goes down, right? We've hit the rock. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, and because I think people want to be famous. They want to be like, I'm really happy being myself. I, you know, I don't, I'm not looking to create, um, an image of myself that isn't myself. And I say this as an image maker, and this is because the very true form of Tantra yoga, not the sting six hours of foreplay, which again was co-opted by the media is the peeling. The Tantra yoga is about peeling off the masks and looking at what's really there. And nobody wants to do that. And the thing is, this is why tech companies are coming under scrutiny, right? Like they're providing it for us. There's a filter to make you look like you, but not really you. There's a filter to make you look totally unlike you. Um, so again, like that report I was just talking about, it's just making it easy. It just fast tracks the process of hiding. Yeah. And the thing is, is the insipid nature of it. So what can start out fun? Like you're like, oh, this is fun. Like I'm going to send it to my friends or isn't this fun? Like, look, I have brown eyes and now I have blue eyes or a turquoise eyes. But what that's doing is you have to look at this is white supremacy in every nook and cranny of our lives because the people who are drawn most to it are not white people because they already look like that. It's centering whiteness. It's promoting white supremacy. Yeah, on, on in tech, it's really interesting. So I recently um, had a dabble with the Bumble app. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a dating app, swipe left, swipe right. And the founder of it was being the youngest woman in the United States to um, to float. IPO, yeah. Exactly, right. Um, although they do keep saying in the press that she's the youngest person ever to do that. And there was a British woman who did it when she was 29. But just Noted. Saying, just saying. <laughs> big shout out to Emma Sinclair. The, um, but what's really interesting on that is that I mostly date white guys. And it learns your preference. <laughs> Yeah, it learns your preferences. And so it stops showing you black guys after a while. Yeah, because there's an algorithm. Even what you think you are seeking out on Instagram isn't what you're seeking out. It's what the algorithm is is giving you. You think you're clever, but you're not. I, I Everybody should watch The Social Network. I haven't watched it yet. I'm too, I'm just leaving. I've worked for tech companies, so I get it. I've been watching The Leftovers. Have you seen this? Yeah, no, I haven't. I, you messaged me about it. This is a drama series. It's quite Twin Peaks-like. Okay. And the premise is that 2% um, of the world's population vanish instantly. No one knows why. So is it the rapture? Have they been taken to heaven? No one knows why. And then three years on, you're just dealing with what's left and there's like a rise in cult memberships and trauma response. Some people can deal with it. Some people can't. Some people have been affected more than others. It's quite a juicy one to watch in the middle of the pandemic 
Well, we're not, we're the end of the pandemic now, aren't we? It's all finished. It's all good. <laughs> it's got what? an expiration date. If only for, if only the pandemic were like milk, it's like, it says the 8th of March. I think, I think it's fine. It's yesterday. Boris Johnson told us that it was over. So that's great, right? I mean, it seems like a reliable source. What, um, what culture are you consuming in lockdown, Seema? I'm going to try and we've, we've gone deep today. It's been like um, a very deep coaching session. I'm, I'm not. For Pepe Banter. So let's, let's try and. I'm not a huge um, consumer uh, because I'm in creator mode. Right, so I about your um creative output at the moment. Are you allowed to talk about what's going on? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, got this opportunity to uh, make make a TV show, so make a series. Uh, I've worked on a lot. Like, so what I do is I write for a lot of producers, and I create pitches, and I do the writing, or I um, do the first draft of a pitch based on books that have been optioned for movies or a limited edition series. And based on the success of those where I'm not part of the production, I'm a hired gun. It's an exchange of money and um, go be on your way. And then I, then I consult a lot of people too, like around storyboards and, you know, casting. Sometimes I make casting introductions from my past life and, extract money from that, you know, every, and I'm really clear on what's transactional, like where, if you can't get to this person without me, then you probably have to pay me to make you make a connection. Right. And, but what's that, that's all led to, because I'm very clear with my boundaries and I don't pursue it is, um, some very established people in the world of film and television, um, have provided an opportunity to create a show where I, create it and I'm not creating it alone. I'm creating it with two other people. And, uh, and then it needs to be pitched to like Netflix, Amazon and all the rest of it. And it's like, a, you know, it's, I don't know what I'm doing. And it's a drama. No, it's, uh, it's, it's actually not a drama. It's a limited edition, like a limited series of, uh, it's a travel, like a premiere travel docuseries, you know, so that's a great opportunity. So that consumes a lot of my time. And then with the other box, um, you know, my role there was to scale the business and to make it profitable, which has been going successfully. And we're really grateful for that. But people don't come to the other box because they don't have problems. Like we're not a sweet shop, like, oh, a fancy something sweet. You know, it's not like uh, our, our group is called the Ludu Ladies Club, because that's where the sweetness lies. But that's about it. People come to us because they have a problem in their business. And usually that problem is rooted in racism. So because there's so much racism in the world, uh, what we're working on is scaling that by taking all of the courses online. I co-create the courses, but I don't deliver them because that's just not my bag. I've never would have ever signed up to be an anti-racist educator. Um, I'm a storyteller. That's what I do best. I did it via clothes when I got my first job at Fairweather and I'm doing it now, you know, and that's what I've done all throughout is, you know, when I dress celebrities, it was like, what story do you want to tell? You know, who do you want to be in this, you know, um, in, on this talk show, on this red carpet, whatever it was. Um, so that's what we're doing. And then I ride my bike all over the place. I love being out in nature. I have a Cronan, like a Swedish army bike. Um, 
and I moved it here from Canada. I bought it from Wallpaper Magazine like almost two decades ago, and there was only 1,200 made, and it has no speeds and is heavy as a tank. But I just get such joy riding it through the empty streets of London, and it's beautiful. I don't own a TV. I don't have a TV license because I love TV and I call it Jellivision. And it feels like jello between the toes, like, ooh, it's kind of like weird, but so good. And then I would just do nothing and I would watch a lot of TV, but I feel like that's a waste of why I'm here. Oh, that's a mic drop, Buckerston, wouldn't you say? That's a mic drop moment, I'd say. I'm writing it down on my A4 piece yeah, of paper with I my think, pen. I think we need to make that into a meme, a yeah. SEMA meme. We're doing something with that for sure. <laughs> I mean, there's also quarantine Kumar's kitchen. I cook a lot. <laughs> I love watching your stories of you making the most beautiful looking tea. It's the most mesmerizing thing that comes up on my stories and I adore it. One that we don't call, we don't call turmeric latte because that's misappropriation. It's, you know, it's, it? it's stopped. 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 Yeah, it's Mummy G's uh, magical elixir, you know, she, and it's a hug in a mug. You know, it's just, it really is the smell of it in my house. You know, she was with me for three months last year and, um, uh, and literally she blasted into town to play the, the role, the, the ultimate role of mother, which was like to nurture me back to health. And so just even the always witnessing the presence and the like the slow nature with which she commits to everything is really beautiful. Cause I have a very fast life. I'm not a fast mover. I always tell people, they're like, how can I speed up? I need things to speed up. I'm like, if you want, you got to slow down to speed up. Like we are in the matrix. Well, there's a lot of things. We are going to end because I promise. There's a lot of things that you have to have in place in order to be that present. And that's the thing, the presence isn't that, she's not trying to be present. She's present because she's gone through other processes. So she's done the work that enable her to appreciate the moment and be fully conscious and not be distracted and knocked out in various ways that humans choose to do it. The thing that she does is the thing that I do is the thing that I wish a lot more people would do is you have to be interested in yourself, but people are interested in how to be like other people. You have to be interested in who you are and nurture you, your Eunice. And, uh, she's definitely done that, you know, and, um, and it shows up and, you know, she's definitely gone through her own dark night of the soul. And I think when you come out the other end, there is a way you move through the world, having um, not skipped any steps. Yeah, because there's more at stake. Like the work is hard, as you were talking about earlier. Doing the work on yourself is really hard, like in recovery. And you only, you know, you only go into the 12-step program and face yourself because you think you're going to die. I mean, really, it's too hard otherwise you give up. And people sometimes still give up anyway. But you have to have a lot taken away from you before. The thing I found is people only change when changing is easier than being the way they are. Yeah. And we have so many mechanisms to support the way we are that we can stave off changing. I mean, I say that as someone who was messy. Um, like I used to be emotionally messy. I bet you're still cool though, don't you say, Buckers? 
mostly messy, but probably still cool. Seema's just just infinitely cool. <laughs> I think you came out of the womb cool. So, I mean, I am too. Yeah. And you, Fleur. <laughs> you know, um, you, I mean, maybe perceived that way, but when people got close to me, like they'd be like, whoa, like that, this is messy. And because there was a lot of pain, like unresolved pain there. And, you know, it's really worth it to resolve your pain because, you know, I'm a definitely a, an, a minority in this country. I'm a minority in my neighborhood and uh, I'm a minority in the, in the industries that I work in. And, um, but I don't feel minoritized at all. I just, I feel like I'm, you know, I am me and I belong here and I take up as much space as I want to. I have like zero conflict in my life. And I, it's because I don't have conflict with myself. When you resolve the inner conflict, you become very at ease with, you know, recognizing you don't have to show up at every argument you're invited to. So Buck is when Seema makes an app and you could just have her playing in your ear instead of Matthew McConaughey, <laughs> you signing up? It's going to change my life. Yeah. <laughs> Hurry up. <laughs> you have to finish, but, um, it's always hard saying goodbye. Somewhere. It's always nice spending time with you, Fleur. We really went deep. And it's, it was hard to tackle that subject because that's really just not my area. I'm like, I'm on level, I'm in kindergarten mm. on like racism and all that stuff. So I really, I don't, didn't want to put this out in any way saying like, this is what I think. I've just got a pile of papers that I'm reading and I'm thinking about and I'm right, right at the beginning. I don't have any answers in that area, but it was it was great to like to to poke it about a bit today. The easiest thing to do, and you know, this isn't because, and I can understand that, especially if you're white, it feels really bad. But welcome to how everybody who's not white has always felt forever, right? So the easiest thing to do, and you know, really just flip the script on it. Like look at privilege as a superpower. Like people should find out how privileged they are because then you can just decide like what kind of superhero you want to be. And then you can go use your privilege because you know your privilege. And, um, you know, and the other thing is just start at the, start the race called I am racist, right? And the, the race is called I am racist. And then like always, the white people will be at the front of the line because they are the most racist. You've got everybody else kind of tapered off behind them. So the head start, like in all things in white supremacy, that has the most lead is white people in the running the race of I am racist. But there's, you know, Indian people are behind you. Fijian Indian people are behind you. Um, you know, Asian people are behind you. The, and, you know, there's it, there's so many intersections of racism and oppression. And um, I think when people stop treating it like the oppression Olympics and just get clear with their priorities of it exists, it has multi-layers, it is intersectional, and we all have a role to play to do the work, it doesn't feel icky because it is humanity globally we should um traditionally podcasts end with some type of um, promotion from the guest that's what um that's what you get for being here so um you don't really need that though unfortunately 
No, I think if I promote anything, uh, like, you know, there's really fun things like the other box, we're writing a book. So that's happening, you know. But also before the book book happens, um, I did one of your webinar seminar things, right? A while ago is that still available yeah there's the emotional intelligence so what happened is when lockdown happened the other box we lost eighty thousand pounds worth of contracts within two weeks from some of the most prestigious companies in the world so i won't promote anything but i will tell people who are listening if you are self-employed and you are you're making your own way in the world you know, there was there was a panic, especially with Leanne Roshni, you know, they're at a different stage in their um, entrepreneurial journey than I am. I was like, let it go like the fast, like radical acceptance. I was like, let it go immediately. And I crunched the numbers and I was like, this is how much money we'll have at the end of June. And we ended up making five times that last year. Now, I do want to caveat that our profits were off the back of the most horrendous thing, which is the murder of Mr. George Floyd. So there's, in in a sense, you know, that's to me is the most heartbreaking thing. And I can guarantee you most of, you know, the people who come through, like the change will be incremental because the, it will be like a trend, you know, but you, there's what you want and then there was what you're committed to. But what I can tell you is, the companies that had to cancel their contracts with us um, were, are the most coveted com co companies that people want to work for. They could not sustain their own teams and workforce. So you, people really need to, and you know, women especially, female entrepreneurs need to understand that you are the most powerful person in the room because when you are looking at huge corporations, that have had to let people go and have no infrastructure to support them through a pandemic. You don't wanna be a part of that system. That system is not built to support you. Do not go for a job where you have a title of creative director and you're attached to these campaigns globally because the pandemic has shown that the power is with the everyday person and you want to be the most empowered everyday person. And then, you know, what you're doing at real work is so beautiful because you're creating a community. And if you, the other thing I'll promote is the Deborah Freeze uh, Ted talk, you know, just put Deborah Freeze. Um, she's got four beautiful personas in there and you will identify at least with one. Most people will identify with probably two. And when what it does is it shows how we are all interconnected and linked and need each other to support each other. And I, the, but the webinars that you talk about, those were brought out because we had time and space because we lost all these clients. And we created a series on emotional intelligence to help people through the early days of the pandemic. Now it was sold as live webinars, but there was such a demand for them that we recorded them and you can buy the recordings individually or as a group. So what you're seeing is you're going to be seeing a recorded webinar of an event that happened last year. We're going to put all the links. We'll put all the links in the... Um... Yeah. And they're still available. And I would say if anyone's really just even entering, like my hand has been in creating all of that stuff. So if you're 
even thinking of entering, getting out of your own way and getting out of victim consciousness and, and like go, go and take them. We've got to finish Seema. Thank you so much. Let's do the mommy. Thank tea. you. Did you see Buck as her oh. kiss goodbye? Like she's smoking a cigarette, even though she's never smoked one. She, she's never even held a cigarette and, but she does the most chic. Let's do that. And it's a double one. She double does the cigarette. Yeah. Thank goodness. Thanks. Thank you for Seema and thank you for Mommy G, who's kind of my pinup. <laughs> She's a good one to have. She's a good pinup to have. Thank you so much for being our guest. Lovely to see you both and thanks for having me. Goodbye. That's the end of this week's episode of the Real Work Podcast. If you want more from me before the next episode or you'd like to learn more about real work, You can find me on Instagram and YouTube where I share experience and advice for women who want to work and earn on their own terms. My Instagram handle is at doreal.work and on YouTube it's realwork, all capitals, all one word. Please rate and review this podcast if you know how (laughs) and tell people about it. It all helps. Thank you for being here. See you next time. We finished recording. That was good, right? That went well. Yeah, that was really good. Thanks, Buckers. I couldn't have done it without you, though. We should um, we should put like a little ad or something at the end to promote your work as a podcast producer. What do you think? Really? Yeah. No, that's a bit awkward. It's like it's like it's it's your stage. It's like me coming up and like taking the microphone and it's saying, "Hi, me." It's a collaboration. It's right that you should get a mention. You know, you used to be on the radio. We should make a little jingle or something. <laughs> um, well, I have actually got something that I was having a little play around with a while back. But mm-hmm. yeah, but don't get excited. It's nothing fancy. You got it. Play it. Play it. Let's have a listen. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, I do, yeah. All right, then. Let me find it. Okay, here it is. If you want to make a podcast that your audience will adore But the thought of making it yourself terrifies you to the core Then you know who to call Producer Buckers She knows just what to do Producer Buckers To make your podcast dreams come true She used to work in radio where she was poorly paleo A dab hand at audio Find producer Buckers on Instagram at decibel underscore creative or click the link in the show notes. Come on, everyone. Producer Producer Buckers. If you want to hire the best producer Buckers, just put it to the test. Producer Buckers, just press record and she does the rest. Producer Buckers. Yeah, um, okay, good.